Well, I'm intrigued to know that next week's sermon will be online tomorrow morning. That should make the task of preparation considerably easier. (laughs) But we're going to uh, begin by looking at uh, 1 Samuel 18, which is on page 290 in the Church Bibles. It's quite a long section, so it will help uh, me, and I hope it will help you if you've got sight of that, page 290. According to the advert, you either love it or hate it. Uh, For some, it's the height of savoury satisfaction, whilst for others, it's a a culinary catastrophe. The world, it seems, is divided in its reaction to Marmite. The same, I think, is true of the bagpipes. Uh, Our Scottish student worker, Dave Todd, keeps trying to persuade me that the bagpipes are the invention of a musical genius. But I'm afraid for me, the bagpipes hail from the dark side. As Alfred Hitchcock once observed, I understand the inventor of the bagpipes was inspired when he saw a man carrying an indignant asthmatic pig under his arm. (laughs) Unfortunately, the man-made object never equaled the purity of sound achieved by the pig. Some things divide opinion. You either love them or you hate them. So it is actually with God's King, Jesus. As C.S. Lewis famously observed, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Well, in the Old Testament, the reaction to God's King David is similarly divided. Some see the victory that he has won for them and they love him deeply, serving him, speaking for him, even risking their lives for him. Whilst for others, David's rule inspires not love, but hatred, a disturbing, curiously irrational hostility that would rather see God's king killed than crowned. And yet the central message of these chapters is this. You cannot thwart the success of God's king. You cannot thwart the success of God's king. So God speaks through the psalmists like this. Why do the nations conspire And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. See, our narrator is keen to impress upon us, his readers, the impossibility of defeating God's king. So if you cast your eye down to chapter 18 and verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it successfully. Now, the surprising defeat of Philistine might that we looked at last week in chapter 17 was far from a one-off. So, verse 30 of chapter 18, 
The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. And the secret of David's success? Well, that too our writer wants to hammer home. You see, David was successful because, verse 12, the Lord was with him. Verse 14, the Lord was with him. Verse 28, the Lord was with him. You cannot thwart the success of God's king. And David's victory was one that inspired deep affection and settled confidence amongst the people. And in the first place, David's success inspired the love of the king's son. Now, David, you remember, is the anointed king, and yet Saul still occupies the throne. But the days of Saul's rule are numbered. And whilst he clings to power with an increasingly malevolent and irrational desperation, nothing in the end will prevent David from being crowned. And there is in all of this a very striking contrast between the reaction of Saul's son Jonathan and Saul himself. So again, if you look back to the beginning of chapter 18 that we didn't read, after the death, of the death and defeat of Goliath, We read that Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. You see, for Jonathan, David's victory inspired a deep-seated love for and a binding commitment to God's king. And so, verse 4, the crown prince and likely heir to Saul's throne takes off the robe he was wearing and gives it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Self-rule gives way to the Saviour's rule. For in relinquishing the trappings of royalty, Jonathan recognises David as God's king. And yet if David's success inspired Jonathan's love, it also precipitated Saul's hatred. A hatred that in the end becomes a plot to kill. Chapter 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But in the NIV's very weak rendering, Jonathan was very fond of David, or or much better put, Jonathan delighted much in David. And committed to him and delighting in him, Jonathan served David. And his was a love that was willing to speak for God's king. A king through whom the Lord, as Jonathan puts it in verse 4 of chapter 19, had won a great victory. Indeed, Jonathan reminds Saul that he had seen the Lord's victory and rejoiced in it. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And so the Lord preserves the life of his innocent king through the love and persuasion of Jonathan. And we are reminded again that you cannot thwart the success of God's king. And yet Saul's words in verse 7 are soon to be little more than empty promises. So as David is again successful against the enemies of God and his people, verse 8, Saul is once more gripped by an irrational and jealous hostility. And he tries, verse 10, to pin David to the wall. But David eludes him. 
And as he escapes the hatred of Saul, he heads home to the love of Michal. Now again, it's striking to see the polarised reaction that there is to God's king. Saul's hatred is set alongside Michal's love. So in chapter 18, we're told twice that the king's daughter loved David. Chapter 18, verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. Verse 28, when Saul realised that the Lord was with David and that his daughter, Michal, loved David. Indeed, was such was Michal's love for David, she was willing to take considerable personal risk for him before her increasingly unstable and unpredictable and malevolent father. So, verse 11, there's a stakeout at David's home, chapter 19, verse 11. And David, who was exiled from the royal courts, finds he is hounded even in his own house. You see, like the greater king to whom he points, David had no place to lay his head. So, Michal's warning to her husband, verse 11, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And so as David once again flees for his life, the love that he has inspired in Michal is willing to take considerable personal risk to defend God's king. So it seems that she, she mocks up some sort of dummy David, verse 13, a sort of idol with a goat's hair toupee. And when the hit men come calling, verse 14, she buys David some time with the briefest of statements. He's ill. But of course, Saul is not easily discouraged. And no sooner have the messengers returned to him with Michal's sick note, and Saul is ordering that the patient be bought, bed and all. And of course, what he has in mind is not a bunch of get-well grapes, but a little monarch-assisted suicide, verse 15. Bring him up to me, so that I may kill him. After that, Michal is rumbled And do note, will you, how Saul then takes the high moral ground in verse 17. Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? As if a murderer in search of an innocent victim has the right to the truth of the victim's whereabouts. Now, of course, the text neither condemns nor condones Michal's deception, but you you are left wondering, aren't you? Did Saul really have the right to the truth he sought? See, I'm not so sure. And I wonder that whatever the difficulties and messiness of the situation, I wonder whether the main thing that our writer wants us to do is not to condemn Michal's deception, but to wonder at her love. For here is a love for God's king that is willing to take extraordinary personal risks. A love for a king whose success cannot be thwarted. See, throughout these two chapters, David inspires love and loyalty amongst so many people. The king's son, Jonathan, loves David. The king's daughter, Michal, loves David. Even the king's people love David. Chapter 18, verse 16. 
Even the king's people loved David. All Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. You see, the victory of God's king ought to inspire your loyalty and move your affection. Now, of course, if you don't realise the greatness of your need for God's king or the completeness of his victory, well, your loyalty will be faltering and your love will be weak. It's why Jesus tells the parable of the two debtors in Luke 7. Now, the two men who owed a certain moneylender cash. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. And then Jesus asks his question. Now, which of them will love him more? You see, when you know your debt to God is vast and unpayable, then you will love God's king, the king to whom David points. You will love Jesus deeply and you will serve him and speak for him and even take risks for him for no other has won your heart as he has. I understand that Richard Vermbrandt, the persecuted Romanian pastor, once spoke from this pulpit. And as many of you will know, Vermbrandt spent decades in prison, incarcerated and tortured by the Romanian communist authorities, his mind and his body bearing the scars of his terrible experiences. And Vermbrandt very famously stood before a committee of the US government in May 1966 to give evidence against the communist exploitation of religion. And at the end of his evidence, he he tells a story of another Romanian pastor, a man like Vermbrandt and thousands of others who were conscripted forcibly by the communists in the construction of the Danube Canal. And in his deposition, Vermbrandt recalls when this fellow pastor was randomly plucked from the ranks of prisoners and questioned by a guard. What are you by profession? He said, a priest. And then mocking the communist said, do you still believe in God? This priest knew that if he says yes, This is the last day of his life. We all looked at him. For a few seconds he was silent. Then his face began to shine and then he opened his mouth and with a very humble but a very decided voice he said, Mr. Lieutenant, when I became a priest, I knew that during church history thousands and thousands of Christians have been killed for their faith. And notwithstanding, I became a Christian and a priest. I knew what I became. Mr. Lieutenant, prison is not an argument against religion. I love Christ from all my heart. I am sad that I can't give the intonation with which he said these words. I think that Juliet, when she spoke about Romeo, she spoke like that. 
We were ashamed because we, we believed in Christ. This man loved Christ as a bride loves the bridegroom. When you know that your debt to God is vast and unpayable, then you will love God's king. The king to whom David points. You will love Jesus deeply and you will serve him and speak for him and even take risks for him because no other person has won your heart as he has. But if David's strength inspired love in many, it also generated opposition in Saul. Now, of course, some opposition isn't too troubling, as the Irish discovered yesterday. English, English, it seems, are no longer playing sexy rugby, whatever that means. Or if you're a Liverpool fan, you, you may remember the infamous 1967 match against Leeds United, when Leeds goalkeeper Gary Sprake made a gaffe that has since landed him in the observer's ten worst mishaps in the history of sport. Uh, Sprake, having safely gathered a Liverpool ball, proceeded inadvertently and rather embarrassingly to throw the ball into the back of his own net. Uh, Scouse humour drew further attention to the mishap at half-time, for the DJ on duty at Anfield that day played a fitting record by Des O'Connor. Careless hands. Apparently, every time we revisited Anfield, they used to play it as well. Oh, if some opposition is laughable, Saul's opposition was actually deeply troubling. Saul, it seemed, opposed David with all the single-minded passion that Jonathan, Michal, and the people loved David. Now, the turning point for Saul comes in the midst of national celebrations as the people sing and dance for joy. Chapter 18, verse 7. You see, Saul hears a lyric that stirs his jealousy and hardens his heart. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And so a jealousy that begins to eat away at Saul's soul means that he sets his heart on the elimination of the man who threatens his rule. But as Dale Ralph Davis observes in his excellent little commentary, you can bash yourself against omnipotence, but the success rate is nil. You see, Saul will use any and every means in his attempt to kill God's king, but at every turn his purposes are thwarted. He tries to pin David to the wall with his spear, and he fails three times. He shamelessly uses the love of his daughter in his bid to be rid of David, conscripting David for the front line in a gruesome battle with the Philistines. His hope? Well, as chapter 18 puts it, his hope is that the hand of the Philistines might be against David. And of course, it was all to no avail. When in frustration he makes makes public his murderous intent, he is thwarted by the persuasive arguments of his son and the cunning schemes of his daughter. 
And in all of it, what is particularly striking is just how irrational Saul's behaviour is. See, why did he fear David? Because the Lord was with him and David's success was unstoppable. Chapter 18, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Verse 15. When Saul saw how successful David was, he was afraid. You get the same thing in verse 28. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David... Saul became still more afraid of him. You see, if that's what Saul really thought, then his opposition is, is totally irrational, isn't it? You see, if the Lord was with David, securing his success, how could he possibly imagine that he would be able to stop him? All this plotting to take David out, all his violence and and ranting and manipulation, it was a complete and utter waste of time, wasn't it? And yet somehow Saul still thought he could reject God's king and get away with it. It's why the end of chapter 19 is such a disturbing and sobering picture. David is excluded from the royal courts, hounded from his own home, Pursued by Saul's henchmen, even as far as Ramah, where David seeks refuge in the house of God's prophet, Samuel. And what follows is an extraordinary display of divine power. Some sort of spirit-inspired ecstasy that restrains Saul's violence and humbles Saul's pride. Now Saul sent men to capture David, verse 20. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader... The Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. You know, Saul is nothing if not persistent. So he sends more men, verse 21, and the same thing happens. And then he sends men a third time, and the same thing happens. And you you kind of think that by now Saul might just have got the message. But then he mounts one last desperate attempt. See, maybe he thought, if you want a job doing, do it yourself. After all, his messengers had shown themselves to be incompetent, hadn't they? And so Saul takes matters into his own hands. Now, of course, the irony is, he can't even find David. Verse 22. So the proud and defiant king arrives at the great cistern at Seku, only to discover that he's in the wrong place. And when he finally makes it to Naoth at Ramah, well, he too is restrained by the spirit of the living God. See, you really cannot thwart the success of God's king. There is actually a sobering twist in the last verses of this chapter. At the beginning of chapter 18, Jonathan willingly takes off the robe he is wearing. At the end of chapter 19, Saul, it seems, is forcibly constrained to do the same. Now, the word used for stripping off here in verse 24 of chapter 19 is actually the same word used of Jonathan's disrobing at the beginning of chapter 18. You see, Jonathan willingly surrenders the tokens of self-rule to the king he loves. 
Saul forcibly surrenders the same before the king he fears. You see, whether he is received or rejected, Jesus, God's eternal king, rules. We can either acknowledge that willingly and with delight now, or we will acknowledge it unwillingly and with dread then, on the day when Christ, the king of all, returns. And so I find myself going into this week both encouraged and yet troubled. Encouraged because nothing can thwart God's eternal plans in Christ. Nothing. And yet at the same time as that brings me encouragement, it also troubles me. And perhaps you too. See, the trouble is that I often don't live as if that's true. It is relatively easy to say that Jesus is my king and at the same time to live as a rebel citizen. Truth be told, often I prefer self-rule to the Saviour's rule. But you know, Jesus, the eternal king of all says if you love me you will obey my commands well let's pray shall we Lord Jesus Christ, we thank and praise you that you are indeed the eternal King. And we pray that an understanding of that would so move our hearts and affections that we might truly love you deeply, that we might speak for you, that we might even take risks for you, And knowing, Lord Jesus, your eternal and unconquerable rule, we pray that you would give us grace and power this week to live with you as King, that we might show our love in obeying your commands. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.